Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Danielle Karopkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario, on behalf of webyeshiva.org. We are studying Moren Nevuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. We are in the third section, and we are in the middle of, really towards the end of uh, chapter eight. So we had mentioned that when we first started uh, section three of the Moren Nevuchim, that the Rambam really is dedicating, it seems, this entire section to one theme, and that is the theme of providence in a world where God supervises and oversees man's behavior and rewards and punishes. Uh, God is a retributive God. He gives man his due recompense in a just system. And in order for that to be true, there must be the existence of free will, and in order for there to be free will, man has to be exposed to both good and evil. And so <clears throat> using this providential system, uh, the Rambam had begun discussing the Ma'asei Merkava, how God interacts using the divine realm down into the celestial realm, down into the, our realm, the terrestrial realm. And now he's begun a discussion of the existence of evil. Um, and this is, of course, all leading to the idea that man has free will and must choose wisely. Uh, we did most of chapter eight last week, and our discussion revolved around the whole idea of matter and form, that God created a, a dichotomous universe that is comprised of a duality, of, uh, and the Rambam aligns matter and form, these Aristotelian terms, with good and evil and that therefore it is necessary for man to reject or eschew um, uh, matter, the material world, and try to cling only to the form world, the world of forms, the world of ideas, of, in of intellect, unless he can find good form, which is where, a good matter, that is, where, which is what the Rambam had said that King Solomon had analogized as the Eshet Chayil, the woman or the matter of valor. Um, and <clears throat> we last left our discussion in chapter 8 with the Rambam telling us that when man uses his mind to think about sin, that's actually worse than perhaps even performing the sin itself, in quotes from our sages to point that out. And the reason is, and here is where I'm going to uh, bring up my handout for you, and this handout is available um, for you if you'd like to download it. Uh, it's uh, in the Facebook group, she or in Morena Vuchim, and it is also available on the webyeshiva.org website. So after having set forth the need for man to utilize his world for good, which he connects to form, and to reject evil, which he connects to matter, he also points out that a man who thinks of sin is in some way worse than one who actually commits the sin because he is using that which is uniquely human about him. The faculty, which is the most noble part of man, which is his thought, and instead of using that to elevate himself, is using it to degrade himself by thinking of sinful things. And he compared that to using the noble free man instead of the ignorant slave, instead of the body, to sin. So in a, in a similar vein, the Rambam now embarks on the final page of chapter 8 to uh, on a discussion of language. He now states a similar argument 
for the proper use of language because language is a utility available to humans alone. It is man's distinguishing feature to be able to learn from others through language and to communicate to others through language. Now, elsewhere, the Rambam had pointed out that language does have its limitations because there are ideas that can exist in the abstract that transcend the concreteness of language. But nonetheless, it is still a unique feature of one's humanity. And the use of language was given to man to perfect him, to help him learn and teach and interact with others. One, therefore, who uses it for disgraceful purposes, such as the way that sinful Gentiles say in their songs and stories, in other words, referring to sexual things and referring to issues that are unseemly to be discussed in holy circles, is taking the very tool that was given to elevate him and is using it instead to degrade himself. And the Rambam writes, using the, an, an analogy from the book of Hosea, that such a person is like those who use God's gifts of silver and gold and construct idols with them. So if you take all of your wealth that is God-given and use it to construct something that goes against God, that's actually the greatest betrayal for the Rambam, and therefore he views language in the same way. This might be acceptable for others, he says, who were not part of the Jewish people, but not for those about whom it has been said, You shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now the Rambam, and this is really where I want to focus a little bit of extra time, the Rambam now embarks on an explanation as to why Hebrew is called Lashon HaKodesh, the Holy Tongue. Um, I would like to begin reading inside. If we look at the Pines, the Shlomo Pines edition that we've been using this whole time, let's please look at page 435 in the middle of the bottom paragraph. He now says, I can also give the reason why this, our language, is called Lashon HaKodesh, the holy language. What does it mean when we say that the language of Hebrew is holy? It should not be thought that this is on our part an empty appellation. Some say, as, um, as Pines points out in the footnote, um, as we'll see that uh, uh, he says an exaggeration, it could also be translated from the Arabic as a statement of arrogance or of ego, that uh, we are Judeocentric and therefore we think that our language is better than every other, or a mistake. In fact, it is indicative of true reality. For in this holy language, no word at all has been laid down in order to designate either the male or the female organ of copulation, nor are there words designating the act itself that brings about generation, sperm, urine, or excrements. No word at all designating according to its first meaning any of these things has been laid down in the Hebrew language, and they being signified by terms used in a figurative sense and by allusions. The Rambam's thesis is that the thing which makes Hebrew the most holy of languages is the fact that you will not be able to find in the entire lexicon of the Hebrew language words that refer to issues of sexuality, sexual organs, sexual activity, um, and so forth. And you will not find any word in Hebrew that accurately depicts the excretion of bodily waste. There will be euphemistic words that are chosen to describe what is happening, and therefore the Rambam says that the word so'ah, for example, which means excrement, is from the word yotze, something that leaves the body. 
the word for urine, there is no word for urine except meimei raglayim, which is the water that is by the legs or that comes out near the legs. So these are all euphemistic terms. We talk about shichvat zera, a layer of seed to describe sperm. And again, it's really just the word zera means seed. And so again, it's a euphemistic term. This is the Rambam's thesis. And as a matter of fact, he says, what about you may, uh, you may encounter a word in Deuteronomy, which we read in a section called the Tochacha that says that ish acher yish galena, that another man will have sexual relations with your wife. That's one of the curses that's contained in the Torah. Uh, and uh, we read that word differently. We say yishkavena instead of yishkalena. So the Rambam wants to make sure that we understand that even that word yishkalena means to take someone as a slave, as a slave girl, but it doesn't mean actually to have sexual relations with her. And that's the Rambam's thesis. Uh, uh, now, we're going to try to analyze shortly when we get to the end of our discussion today, why this is important for the Rambam to delineate for us what he thinks makes uh, the Hebrew language holy. He is talking about it in the context of language in general and how a person must use language in the most exalted and ethical of ways. So this is the Rambam's ethical treatise. So we're going to put that on the side for just a moment, but I want to uh, note for our purposes today that what the Rambam is saying is highly controversial and is and is disputed by a large majority of his contemporaries and those who come after him. In other words, if, if we were to ask the average Jew on the street, what is it that makes Lashon HaKodesh, the Hebrew language, holy, I think we would get a completely different answer from this answer that the Rambam is saying is that Hebrew is devoid of any explicit words. Now, let's take a look as our first stopping place, the commentary of the Ramban to, um, to the end of the book of Exodus, where it talks about the mitzvah of taking, uh, in Parshat Ki Tisa, the Torah talks about the mitzvah of taking the machatzit shekel, the half shekel. And the Torah there calls the half shekel as the sort of this coin or this piece of uh, silver, it calls it shekel hakodesh. It is a half shekel from the holy shekel. Now, what makes a lump of silver holy? That's really the Ramban's question. And he answers that it, the fact is that the silver that we're referring to is silver that is used in the construction of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, and it is used for holy purposes, and therefore the Torah calls it the holy shekel. And that causes the Ramban to launch into the question, what makes Lashon HaKodesh, if a shekel HaKodesh is holy because it is referring to silver that is used for holy purposes, what then does it mean for a language to be holy? He says, V'chein hatam etzli, and I'm reading from the underlined section, karim lashon ha-Torah lashon ha-Kodesh. He says, it seems to me that that's the same explanation as to why our rabbis call Hebrew lashon ha-Kodesh. Shuhu mipnei. It's because all the words of the Torah and all prophecies and all holy matters that are dealt with in our faith, they have all been um, uh, expressed in this language. 
and so the Ramban says basically from a utilitarian point of view, when you use a language for holy purposes, you call it the holy language, just like when you use a shekel for holy purposes, you call it a holy shekel. But then the Ramban goes further. It is the language that God himself utilizes to communicate with his prophets and with the entire nation at Mount Sinai. Anochi the Ten Commandments. And God is described in the Hebrew language by his various holy names. So we see that there's an association between God and this language. That's another reason to make Hebrew a holy language. And it is with this language that God created the world. Now here you're getting into some level of Kabbalah, even though you could read that in the simple meaning of the text of the book of Genesis, Vayomer Elohim Yehi Or Vayehi Or, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Well, do we know that what language God uses? The Torah says, according to the Ramban, we take the Torah literally, that when God said, quote, Yehi Or, let there be light, God actually utilized those very words that appear in the Torah, even though God does not enunciate with a mouth in the same way that human beings do, but in some way language was used for the creation of the world and everything that is contained within it. As we're going to see when we look at Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's Kuzari, we will see that there is something called the Sefer Yitzira, a medieval book, an early medieval work that is composed sometime in the period of the Gaonim, which, which contains within it, and uh, according to uh, Jewish tradition, goes back a very long way, either to Avraham or even back to Adam himself. Uh, it is a book that describes how God utilized the letters of the Hebrew language as building blocks, almost like atomic particles, to construct everything that exists in our world. Now, he, the Ramban continues, and he says that God uses these names to, the words to name his angels. He uses these words of Hebrew to name his holy ones in this world. And therefore, there's a great association uh, uh, to holiness because it is a very, very powerful language that God utilizes to have his will done. Now he quotes the Rambam, and he says, he just basically quotes what we've just read from the Rambam, and he says, after quoting him, he says, He says, this reason that the Rambam provides, that there is no uh, explicitly foul language in Hebrew, and everything is euphemized, he says, that reason is unnecessary. Because it is clear that this language is holy of holies, as I have explained. Furthermore, not only is the Rambam's reasoning unnecessary, I believe it to be incorrect. He says the fact that scripture tells us to read the word um, yishgalena as yishgavena. In other words, even though it appears in the text of the Torah scroll as yishgalena, yet when we read it in synagogue, we read it as yishgavena, another man will lie with her, lie with one's wife. So uh, the, that itself indicates 
Um, and there's another example of this where people, where scripture describes people eating their own dung. We do find that the word yishkalena means having sexual relations. And there is a word for dung in, in scripture. If we were to subscribe to the reasoning of the, the Rambam, then instead of calling Hebrew Lashon HaKodesh, the holy language, you should have called it the clean language because it doesn't have any foul uh, words, any obscenities. Um, but that is not the reason, says the Ramban. And with that, he concludes his, his argument and says that, the, that he disagrees and he believes the Rambam is incorrect. Now, before we go into trying to explain the Rambam in more detail, let us look at something that is actually quite jarring. There is uh, a, a sefer called Sefer Hazikaron. It was written in the uh, late 13th or early 14th century by a medievalist called the Ritva, Rabbi Yom Tov ben Avraham of Seville. And he's a very, very highly regarded Talmudic commentary, and his writings uh, are quite, quite extensive on Talmudic study. He also wrote this small work to defend the Rambam's position whenever the Ramban, Nachmanides, would write something critical about the Rambam in the Ramban's Torah commentary. And in this one, and, and normally what the Ritva would do would be to defend the Rambam, Maimonides' position against the attack or the criticism of Nachmanides. This is one instance, and I'm not aware of any other instances, where the Ritva basically says, I got nothing. In other words, I cannot defend the Rambam here. And he says, and his words are quite explicit, Khalila li he says, God forbid that I can even align my own position with that of the Rambam in this matter. May God atone for him for having suggested something that is so far afield from truth. That the Rambam basically took an idea that is so lofty and so important to, as far as why the rabbis call Hebrew Lashon HaKodesh and <clears throat> attribute it to something which is, uh, by relation, is extremely insignificant. The fact that you would call Hebrew Lashon HaKodesh simply because it speaks euphemistically and has no explicitly obscene words is completely off the mark and it is a reduction, in a sense, of the importance of the Hebrew language if you're go only going to say that it's called Lashon HaKodesh for that reason. It's quite fascinating because the Ritva is the Rambam's great defender against the Ramban, and here he basically says, I'm sorry, the, Ram the Rambam, Maimonides, in this instance is indefensible. So this certainly means that the Rambam has gone out on a limb knowing that what he's saying is controversial. Now, let us go to Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. Now, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi predates the Rambam. Um, their lives overlapped by only about five years. Um, and so the Kuzari was written when the Rambam was, was a, a young man. Much speculation has been put forth as to whether or not the Rambam had ever seen the Kuzari or not. 
that logic dictates that because it was such a popular safer shortly after it was published, that the Rambam would have had access to it, and it was written in Arabic, which was the Rambam's mother tongue, but he never makes explicit reference to the Kuzari. Uh, some suggest it's because he didn't agree with so much of Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's worldview. But be that as it may, let's take a look. There are two places in the Kuzari where Rabbi Yehuda Halevi addresses the special nature of the Hebrew language. And the, here it's in uh, essay number two, the second Ma'amar, paragraph 67, the Kuzari said, is Hebrew superior to Arabic? Arabic is a far more complete and robust language. This is self-evident. And, the, and the, the, the argument of the Khazar king over here is, if you were to look at a dictionary of Arabic language, you would find that it is far more, more robust. There are far more words in the Arabic language than there are in a Hebrew dictionary. And that's the fact and the truth even today. In, there are certain words where there might be 10 words in Arabic for this, that are synonyms for the same idea, and Hebrew might only have one or two for that idea. So the rabbi said, well, that's not a good argument because Hebrew suffered the same fate as its bearers. It became impoverished with their impoverishment and it was reduced with their reduction. But it is really the most important of all languages, both for historical and logical reasons. So the first thing that Rabbi Huda Levi says is that don't look at the Hebrew language today as a complete listing of all the words that are contained in Hebrew. When we went into exile, we lost so much of our vocabulary, just like we lost so much of our tradition and our knowledge. And so you cannot say that because Hebrew has so fewer words than the Arabic uh, counterpart, that it is an inferior language. But he says there are two reasons why Hebrew is superior, both for historical and logical reasons. Historically, Hebrew is the language which God used when he spoke with Adam and Chava, and which Adam and Chava used to converse with each other. This can be verified by the etymology of their names. The name Adam is from a Hebrew source. It comes from the word Adama, which means earth. Isha comes from the word Ish, which is a derivative, which means man. Kayin comes from the word Kaniti, that I have acquired this human being. And Shet comes, Shat comes from the word Shat, that God replaced my son who was murdered. And Noach comes from Yenach Amenu, this one will alleviate for us. Additionally, so that's historically, we see that the Hebrew language is the first language to be utilized by man. And according to the tradition, Hebrew was the only language that existed in prehistoric man. And only with the advent of the Tower of Babel was there a proliferation of multiple languages. Additionally, he says, we have the testimony of the Torah given by God and written in Hebrew, and our heritage of Hebrew, which was passed down from generation to generation, going back to Ever, who received it from Noach, who received it from Adam. The fact that it was Ever's language, Ever is Noach's um, um, uh, grandson, is why it is called Hebrew, Ivrit, because Ever was the only one who retained Hebrew during the generation of the dispersion and the confusion of languages, the Tower of Babel, as I mentioned. The reason Avraham spoke Aramaic in Orkastim was because Aramaic was the language of the Chaldeans. He therefore used Hebrew as his special language when discussing holiness, while Aramaic was his language for discussing mundane affairs. Yishmael brought Hebrew to the Arab countries where it merged into Arabic. These three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic, 
are therefore parallel and similar in their vocabulary structure and usage. Nevertheless, Hebrew stands alone above the others. Hebrew's importance from a lot, so that's all from the historical point of view. It is the first language, it is a language that was proliferated to other cultures as well, and therefore it has prominence. Now, Hebrew's importance from a logical standpoint is evidenced by the important people who used it. We see that they needed it for oratory and on a higher level for prophecies that abounded among them. It was necessary to have a clear language in which to convey God's commandments and the songs and praises offered to him. Do you think that the Jewish leaders, Moshe, Yehoshua, David, and Shlomo, lacked eloquent speech when they needed it for oratory, as we today grope for words because we have lost much of the language? Have you seen the narrative of the Torah in its discussions of the tabernacle, the Kohen Gadol's apron and breastplate, and other matters? Whenever the Torah needed to describe an unusual object, how do you think it was able to express each and every one? Even the structure of the language is exceptional, as evidenced by how nicely the Torah's narratives are organized. The Torah was able to provide the names of all the nation's birds and stones in Hebrew. The Hebrew language was also rich enough for David's Psalms, Job's eloquent lamentations and debates with his friends, the rebukes and consolations of Isaiah, and so forth. So the, the uh, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi says from a historical point of view, it is the first language, it is the language which God used to create the world. And logically, we have to conclude that if the Bible is so well constructed, we see that it is a robust language which has no uh, deficiency in coming up with even obscure words to describe obscure things. The fact that it may be a deficient language today is simply because we've forgotten so many of the words. There's this debate whether um, uh, the Bible is the source of all Hebrew language or whether there are far more Hebrew words than just that which is contained in the Bible. Clearly, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is taking the position that there are far more words in the Hebrew language than are contained in the Bible. Now, in another section, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi gets a little bit more Kabbalistic with us, which again goes back to the Ramban, that states that there's something inherent within the Hebrew language that makes it uh, have this supernatural quality. And that seems to be what the Ramban was alluding to as well. And here's where we get to this discussion of the Sefer Yitzirah, which Rabbi Yehuda Halevi engages with in the Kuzari in the fourth essay, paragraph 25, which is a very extensive section. We're not going to get into all of the details there, but we're going to jump into the middle of a conversation where Rabbi Yehuda Halevi makes reference to the Sefer Yitzirah's assertion that God created the all of existence, the entire universe, through using the letters of the Hebrew alphabet as his toolbox, as the ingredients that were put into the construction of the world. And he says, not all spoken or written words have this creative power as Hebrew does. As for languages and the way they are written, some are superior to others. Some languages contain words that are quite appropriate to the objects they describe, while others contain words which are quite distant. The divine language, the only one created by God, in contradistinction to man, which God taught to Adam and placed on his tongue and in his heart, is undoubtedly the most complete of all languages and contains the most appropriate words for the objects they describe. This is the meaning of, and whatever Adam called the living creature, that was its name. Now, I want you to recall the Rambam had clearly and explicitly disputed this contention that the Hebrew language 
innately describes the things that are used in, in the language. So for example, the word Aryeh, which describes a lion, there's something in the word Aryeh, if you were to analyze the letters and break it down, you would be able to discover how the word Aryeh actually describes the creature that we think of when we think of the word Aryeh, which is a lion. This means that the creature was worthy of the name and the name was appropriate to it and indicative of its nature. The Rambam disputes that uh, back in section two, chapter 30, which I'm going to read for you in just a moment. Um, just a small portion more of the Kuzari. This is the reason why we ascribe ascendancy and advantage to Hebrew, the holy tongue. The angels heed and detect it more than any other language. We add that even the way the Hebrew characters are written is deliberate and meaningful, not just a matter of happenstance and that a letter's form is appropriate to the meaning of that letter. We're not going to get into that now because it leads us into a whole discussion of what is what is the Hebrew alphabet, Ketav Shurit, and so forth. Based on this, it should not seem strange that holy names and the like written and spoken in Hebrew can have an effect on creation, provided that their utterance or writing is preceded by the proper mental measurements. By this we mean that the words must be accompanied by the thoughts of a pure soul that resembles angels. In this way, and then he goes on and discusses something which is a quote from Sefer Yitzirah. Now what, the, uh, what Rabbi Yehuda Halevi is alluding to is the mystical or magical or incantational benefit of the Hebrew language, which is discussed extensively in Kabbalistic works. And what essentially he's suggesting is that things like amulets, which have Hebrew language written on them and are, were worn by people to, let's say, ward off evil spirits, there was something to that. Or maybe if a person would say an incantation that was a combination of certain letters, there was some magical influence, that he, theurgic influence that he could affect in the world based on the inherent power, mystical power, supernatural power contained within the Hebrew language. I want to emphasize that for the Rambam, this is all anathema. This is clearly far afield of the Rambam's worldview, where he feels that there is a dichotomous divide between anything within the physical realm and anything within the spiritual realm. There is nothing holy or spiritual that inheres within physical things or places or people. And it's very important for us to uh, reinforce this idea. We've seen this as a recurring theme within the Moren Nevuchim, that the Rambam says that things like language that are used for conventional purposes are completely mundane and of this world. And that leads the Rambam to sort of explain what he does explain about what makes Hebrew holy. There's nothing inherently holy about the things of this world that are used for conventional matters, such as communication or other kinds of tools. And that's what brings me to my analysis, with this, which is how we're going to end our discussion today. This discussion for the Rambam is relevant for his ethical discourse that has been a departure from the rest of this work. Remember from last week, we quoted the very end of this chapter, where the Rambam states, in the greater part of the chapter, we have turned aside from the purpose of the treaties to deal with moral and also religious matters. However, though these matters do not wholly belong to the purpose of the treaties, the order of the discourse has led to that. In other words, we basically followed where this path was leading. Even though my function here is not to present you with an ethical treatise, but nonetheless, because I'm talking about the existence of matter and form as a way of depicting how both good and evil exist in this world to create a level playing field for man to have free will, to choose good and to reject evil, to choose form and to reject matter, this has also led me to a discussion 
of things that exist in our world that man can use both for the good and for the evil. And this is why I've talked about the opportunity that man has to use his intellect either for good or for sin and to use the very language that the thing, the, the human communication, which is, uh, which is contained within language um, or which is sort of um, expressed through language, man has the ability to use that both for good and for bad. And so therefore, the reason why God gave us Lashon HaKodesh, he gave us Hebrew, is that a person has to be, he says, in, it is in this context it, that of a call to behave ethically that the Rambam connects the Hebrew language. One should be sensitive in his use of speech since this is the sole method of communication. One sensitizes himself and attaches more to form by using holy speech that is devoid of vulgar communication. For the Rambam, this is the sole benefit of using the Hebrew language. What are the ramifications of this position? So, for example, is there anything inherently holy within Hebrew? Should a person, let's say a person has the option to pray in either his mother tongue or in the Hebrew language, is there benefit to pray in Hebrew, even if perhaps I may not understand it or appreciate it as well as I appreciate Hebrew? I've, I've spoken extensively about this in various uh, fora. I'm not going to get into that idea of the halachic issues of whether a person should pray in Hebrew preferentially or pray in the language that he understands. But certainly it would seem for the Rambam that a person should always pray in the language he understands because the Rambam defines prayer as avodah shabalev, something that is a service to God with one's mind, with one's consciousness. And therefore, the idea of prayer being an incantational exercise of just reciting Tehillim, for example, which is what many people do today, and without having any thoughts in mind other than I am serving my creator or trying to affect something positive in the world, let's say for Rafua Shalema, for a, a, a speedy recovery for one of my friends who is ill. And so I will recite Tehillim, not, not at all understanding what I'm saying, but believing that the words have some kind of supernatural or metaphysical effect. That's anathema for the Rambam. Okay, some other statements of the Rambam that we should remember is that the Rambam had directly contradicted Rabbi Yehuda Halevi in the Kuzari in section 2, chapter 30. He said, and this it was easy to, to, to miss this, but I refer you back to our lectures on chapter 30 back there. He says, among the things you ought to know and have your attention aroused to is the dictum that man gave names to all of the beasts of the field. It informs us that languages are conventional and not natural, as has sometimes been thought. Whereas Rabbi Yehuda Halevi believes that there's something natural or inherent, that when I think of the word Aryeh, it's descriptive in, innately of a lion. For the Rambam, it's only used for conventional purposes. There's nothing inherent that connects the, the word Aryeh to what you and I identify as a lion. We also have a letter that the Rambam sent to a student of his, Yosef ibn Jabbar, who apparently did not know Hebrew. And he uh, says some very, very flowery and complimentary things to his student, wishing to build him up. Uh, he's, a, he's a great friend of the Rambam, perhaps he's one of his patrons, and is a person who is sincerely a truth seeker, trying to study Torah. But unfortunately, living in Baghdad, he doesn't have a full grasp of the Hebrew language. And so the Rambam responds to his student, and we have it here in, in uh, the, the first part of the letter, which is in Rav Shilat's Igrot that he uh, edited. 
He says, Tehilat mashata tzarich leida, what you first need to know, the Rambam writes. And of course, this is a translation from the original Arabic because the reader would not have understood the letter otherwise. Hashem yatmid that God should always strengthen you and allow you to continue to succeed. You are not an ignoramus just because you are not well-versed in the Hebrew language. You are our student. You are our beloved friend. Anyone who wishes to cleave to the study of Torah, even if he just understands the meaning of one verse of Scripture or only one halacha, it makes no difference whether he understands that verse as it appears in Hebrew or as it appears in Arabic or as it appears in Aramaic. The main thing is that you have to understand what it means. It doesn't matter what language you choose. And he says, Kriyat Shema Muteret He quotes the Talmud as saying that one may recite the Kriya Shema in any language that he wants. If so, then certainly just study of Torah would allow you to understand it in any language that you know. And therefore the main thing is for you to study. Now later in the letter, he does point out that, uh, <clears throat> that there is a need for someone who is not well-versed in the Hebrew language to try and enrich his education and try his best to understand Hebrew. But that said, you see from this and from other sources in the Rambam, which we won't go into today, that the Rambam sees no essential benefit or essential superiority to the Hebrew language. This again goes to the entire worldview of the Rambam, that language is part of the material realm. It is limited in its ability to actually depict the the ideas that are from the form the world of forms that are contained within man's mind they are human constructs in even the language that god used is a construct that is an accommodation to the human being who is limited in his capacity and therefore you shouldn't invest too much in anything in this material realm that certainly is in keeping in line with what the rambam is discussing not only from the point of view of an ethical treatise but also making sure that we understand that there is this very, very large and well-defined divide between the material world and the world of forms, the world of intellect, the spiritual, what we would call the spiritual realm. So I hope that's provided you with some, some food for thought, especially this idea of how we approach the Hebrew language and how we use it in our religious lives to let's say pray without really understanding sometimes what we're even saying. Um, and uh, hopefully it'll give a person some uh, impetus to research this subject even further. For further reading, I would refer you to Menachem Kellner's book on Maimonides' confrontation with mysticism, which is really a very, very important work for a number of reasons. He devotes an entire chapter to the subject of the Rambam's attitude towards language and specifically Hebrew in chapter five of that work. And there's much more to be said on this topic. But for now, we're going to have to stop. And let me wish you all a wonderful uh, week. And we will see you Bezrat Hashem next time. Take care now, everybody. Thank you.